two weeks ago we were talking about, of course we're, we're in Exodus, we were talking about Moses and his experience with the burning bush. And it was made clear, it's funny because obviously there, sometimes when you read something directly in Scripture, it isn't made clear at that point. And you have to search around, not only within the context of, of the story, but you have to search around outside of Scripture to understand some more of the intricacies of what you're reading about. The point here is that this burning bush was not really mentioned what kind of bush it was. So a lot of people think that, and I thought too, that it was some kind of a, a good old tumbleweed, like he was out in the West somewhere, you know, panning for gold and this burning tumbleweed. The funny thing is, is that that kind of thing did happen in those days. They had these tumbleweeds in the desert that would actually set themselves, or not set themselves, but would spark a fire. And it wasn't a very major occurrence, but it, has, it was an occurrence. So it wasn't necessarily that this was so unbelievably, uh, you know, uh, an aberration or something. It, it wasn't so much that he wasn't expecting it, just that it was a very different occasion of it. And we also found out that this bush was probably, and certainly by rabbinical tradition, an acacia bush. The acacia bush had thorns in it. And so where we left off last time was that the thorn, if you look in Scripture, and I had, I had mentioned to you that if you wanted to during the last two weeks, if you've had a chance, is to do a word search in Scripture, whether you use a computer software or whether you use a concordance or however you want to search, to do a search on the word thorns. And you'll get results that almost every single time, if not every single time, thorns are used in judgment or the, the meeting out of judgment or the, the type the type of judgment, of something about judgment. So if you want to turn back to Genesis 3, uh, verses 17 and 18, I'll, you can just listen if you'd like, but you'll know where I'm going with this one. Genesis chapter 3, 17 and 18. This is now, of course, the original sin with Adam and Eve, and uh, here's the curse. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. So that was the beginning of the use of thorns in judgment. I'm just going to read you something else if you just want to listen. In Joshua 23 and verse 12, here's God talking to Israel about turning away and allying themselves with other nations around them, with the pagan nations around them. So he's saying here in Joshua 23 and verse 12, But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land. By the way, what happened to them eventually? <laughs> They were perished from the good land, weren't they? Which the Lord your God has given you. I'm going to read you this also in Proverbs 24, verses 30 and 31. I went past the field of the sluggard, past the vineyard of the man who lacks judgment. Thorns had come up everywhere, and the ground was covered with weeds, and the stone wall was in ruins. What Psalm is talking about here is the lazy person and their way in life and the environment that it yields. And it says that the grounds of the sluggard just comes up with thorns. So that's someone who can reap judgment on themselves. It also speaks to the point that if Adam, when this curse was given, <laughs> didn't start tilling the ground and working it, just as the sluggard is not doing here with his vineyard, what's it going to yield? Thorns. It's a form of judgment. I'm going to read you some more, just proving the point here. 
Isaiah 34, verses 11 through 13. The desert owl and the screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom. Ah, the judgment of whom? Edom. Who are the Edomites nowadays? The Palestinians. Specifically the Palestinians. They're Arabs, but specifically the Palestinians. We talked all about that a few weeks ago. So he's talking about what's going to happen to the Palestinians when they're judged for what they're doing to Israel. So God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish away. Thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles and brambles her strongholds. She will become a haunt for jackals and a home for owls. Hosea 10, verse 8. This is God's judgment on wickedness. The high places of wickedness, the higher governments, you know, the wicked nations, the high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Now, where have you heard people saying, when they know God's judgment is upon them, calling on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them to cover them from the judgment of the Lord, or from the face of the Lord? Where have you heard that before? Revelation. Revelation. Isn't that interesting? So here, Hosea is talking about the judgment during the time of Revelation, and thorns and thistles will grow up on the altars of the pagan religions, the Babylonian mystery religion, and, and all that we've talked about that, uh, that had to start from Nimrod. Finally, two more. Matthew 13 and 22, the parable of the sower and the seed. You all know that parable. Matthew 13, 22. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. So the seed falls among the thorns and, of course, among the, the other ground types that are in this parable. Finally, the ultimate judgment symbolized by thorns, in my opinion, anyway. In Mark 15, verses 16 through 20, you'll know this, and this is why I want to link the thorn bush of Moses with the thorns from the curse from Adam all the way through the thorns of the judgment of Edom, the thorns for the judgment of Israel, the thorns in the judgment of the tribulation, which will be the continued or the unpaused, if you will, judgment of Israel and, of course, the pagan nations in Revelation. So we just talked about that. In Mark 15, verses 16 through 20, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of ah, and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. Jesus wore a crown of thorns. Do you think that was a coincidence? Is there anything in Scripture that's a coincidence at all? It, it, I'm glad you, most of you are shaking your head no, and I know that you, those who aren't shaking your head certainly believe that there is no such thing as coincidence in Scripture. There can't be. This is the document, the detailed document, and everything here has to be truth or related to the truth in some form or fashion. So why was it a crown of thorns? Because Jesus, at the end of this cycle of judgment, as far as our sin is concerned, he had to bear the thorns. That's why the bush, the burning bush, the account of Moses in the burning bush is considered judgment. But notice that the bush was burning 
But what was the special thing that made Moses very curious about this incident? It didn't get consumed. Isn't it interesting? It was judged, but it was not consumed. Hmm. But Jesus was judged, and he was consumed. And you'll see that as Moses' career rolls out, we'll hopefully get to that today, I'm pretty sure we will, one of the plagues uh, that was brought on Pharaoh when Moses went to, help, to free the Israelites was a plague of darkness. And that plague lasted, if you know this plague, how many days did that plague last? It was three. How many days was Jesus after his judgment in the tomb? And the darkness that was given here, and we'll get into this, the darkness in the plague of Egypt was not just a normal darkness. It wasn't an eclipse. You know, sometimes eclipses and events of the sun and the moon, lunar and solar eclipses, are used in Scripture, and we'll get to that later on in the ensuing weeks. But here, even Josephus himself said that this was a darkness that was so thick, and Scripture says it too, that it could be felt. And no one could get out of their house and do anything for three days. That's no eclipse, folks. That's something else. That's the deepest darkness. And you know how darkness is analogous with evil and with sin. When Jesus died and he was judged before his resurrection, sin looked like it was going to win. It's not like a candle could work in there either, from what I understand. Right. You couldn't turn on a light or, you know, light a candle or a fire. It was just... It was totally... Can you imagine, I mean, the literary excellence of Scripture? Now, I'm no English major, but like poetry or like art, I don't know anything about it, but I know what I like. And when it's described in such a fashion to say that it could be felt, can you imagine? I can't imagine a darkness that can be felt unless you were so closed in that there was something blocking your whole life from your surroundings. I, I don't know how that would feel, but that's the way Scripture puts it, and Josephus made it very clear, and you're absolutely right. They couldn't see in front of them. A candle wouldn't work. There'd be nothing they could do. So that's the kind of judgment, and that was three days. Remember, we also talked about, and we'll approach this again, that Egypt is a type of what in Scripture? It's a type of what? The world and its systems and its despotic kingship and its commerce. That's why God says to come out of her, my people. That's why Egypt was used. That's why Jesus had to go to Egypt and then come out. There's a lot to this, and this was, I mentioned this before, but when it started as a judgment for sin, as in Adam, and all human beings since Adam, was made to gather his sustenance from thorns, and we still do that today. I know I don't have to till the ground to get my food, but I have to work pretty hard to earn a salary. And many of you, who, I'll say all of you have to work hard, at some, in some way, shape, or form, whether it's the hours you have to work, whether it's the overtime, whatever it might be, it is not easy to earn a living, and it's getting harder, isn't it? Plus, you never know about that good old job security, do you? So it's, it's all part of that. Adam's thorns were a judgment for him because, remember, he was in the running to become the king of the world, where at the end, he was supposed to be the king of the world, but he sinned. So, of course, now he, has to be able, he cannot do that. So now there's a running. The line eventually through Judah, you know who becomes the king of the Jews first, which is Jesus Christ. And eventually when he comes back, he'll be not wearing that crown of thorns, but he'll be administering the thorns in judgment. But he will be the king of the world when all is said and done. Meanwhile, Satan's got his man that he's been trying to bring up generation after generation in his desire to either eclipse 
the birth of Messiah, which he obviously couldn't do, and then to destroy Messiah, which he obviously couldn't do, and then to destroy Israel, which he keeps on trying to do, but God promises will never happen. And who do you think is going to win at the end? We all know who wins at the end. So it's the man who wore the crown that Moses saw that was burning but not consumed. And Jesus was not consumed on the third day. Yeah. I just want to say that those acacia needles, mm -hmm. those thorns, yep. are three to four inches long, about as long, a little longer than your finger. Yeah. They've got a point on them that's as sharp as a needle. I have a picture at home that I brought back with me from Kenya with my wedding ring sitting on, on one just to give you the size of mm -hmm. how long those things are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's actually a good point now because, you know, you, you see these nice European pictures of the thin-nosed European-looking Jesus. You know, he doesn't look Jewish at all, and he's got this crown of thorns, and the thorns are about that big. That's not what scratched, put little scratches in his forehead. And you're absolutely right, and that's a good point. They were huge. And when they stuck this thing on his head, they dug deep into his scalp. And, you know, if you've ever gotten cut on a thin area of skin like your scalp, it bleeds like madness, right? Can you imagine the blood running down his face as he's being spat upon and the spit of those heathen are mixing with the holy blood of Jesus Christ, his physical blood? Think of the import of this. That's why I start to tear up when I think about it because the more you study the symbolism, the more you study the stories of Scripture, the more these things, well, it can't mean more to you because you know what it means, but the import of really what happened it made, is made more clear. So, the question why a crown of thorns versus thorns on his feet or around his wrist, you know, like handcuffs, that kind of thing? Why a crown of thorns? Well, you know that they mocked him because he said he was king of the Jews, and that was the whole point. But we prove from our study in Genesis that Adam was the first king of the world but lost that position, and he had to take the crown of thorns because Jesus was human as well as God. There are four Gospels. I've said this before. There aren't five or three or two or six or ten. Why? Can anybody answer that? Remember what I what Jesus I had to be four things. He had to be man, he had to be God, he had to be king of the Jews, and he had to be a servant. servant. Absolutely right. You get the gold star today. But I don't have any on this <laughs> But that's absolutely right. That was the earmark of Messiah. That's why there were four gospels, because it had to be proven that Messiah had to be all four things. There was not one that could be missing in the qualities of the true Messiah, and there could be nothing added. Just like scripture. So that was the point. Very good, Travis. Thank you. At the end of the age, either Satan will win the crown of rulership with his human representative, the Antichrist, or God will win with his representative, the man, God, Jesus Christ. We know who wins. Remember this. I'm just going to read this to you. Genesis 49 and verse 10. Remember this. This is Jacob's blessing to the 12 sons, specifically to Judah, through which Messiah came. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he or it, the scepter, comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. You know who that is. All the way from Genesis, it was predicted that there would be one Messiah, and it would be Jesus Christ. And the scepter of rulership would come through Judah, through the line of David, all the way out to Jesus Christ. So the king of the Jews is the kingly line of Judah which of course is separate from the Levitical priesthood, which we'll talk about later on. To wrap this piece up, in Revelation we see that number one. There's one who wears a crown at the opening of the tribulation period. If you're familiar with Revelation, you'll know, but I'm going to read this to you. 
In Revelation chapter 6, right after the letters to the seven churches that Jesus dictates through John, you'll read this. Revelation 6 and verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of seven seals. Plagues, right? Then I heard one of the four living creatures saying a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Who is this rider on the white horse? Who's the rider on this white horse wearing this crown? Is Not, yeah, part of it, partly right, but I'm looking for a personage. I'm looking for someone. Okay, I'll ask it like this. Is it Jesus? Is it right? It's not. But some people make that mistake because he's wearing a crown. But he's not wearing a king's crown. He's wearing the crown of a conqueror. Let me read you the other place where the crown is felled. Revelation 19. At the other end of the book where Jesus Christ comes. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, again, a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. Both capitalized, we know who this is, there is no doubt. He's not nameless here. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him so that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. No doubt, the Logos. By the way, in the book of John, what does the book of John out of the four Gospels seek to prove in Messiah? No, that's Matthew. Matthew was king of the Jews. Mark is the servant. Matthew, Mark, Luke, he had to be man. And then John has a lineage, because they all have a lineage except Mark. What does the lineage say at the beginning of the book of John? In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Complete lineage right there. But if you go back to the book of Matthew or the book of Luke, you see lineages back either to Abraham or to Adam. And in Mark, there is no lineage. Why? Because no one cares where a servant comes from. It's what he does that counts. Very important to understand that. So now we see he's totally identified for you right here. And then it says, on his robe and on his thigh he has written this name, and it is in all capitals... King of kings and Lord of lords. So who is it that is wearing these crowns? You know. Grace always attracts, especially as judgment always repels. So in that burning bush, you have this dichotomy of repelling judgment, but not being consumed because of grace. In every Christian, you have this dichotomy. The old man that is still under its own judgment, trying to fight against the grace that has now been infused into that one person. You and I, as far as my opinion goes, in a way, are the burning bush. Except that our judgment has been paid for, but we're still in that, in that deadlock between judgment and grace. You see what I'm saying? We are not judged now, that's done. But we still struggle, we still struggle with grace versus judgment. And there are many Christians who aren't even sure they're saved. There are many Christians who say, uh, how can I be 100% sure I'm saved? You see what I'm saying? They, they form their own judgment on themselves. Our judgment's paid for, but this deadlock, because we're still human, we're still here, and we are under the judgment of thorns just like Adam is in the physical way. Just like he has to struggle with his life tilling the soil, we have to struggle with our lives 
working against the sin that we feel we should be judged for, even though it's already been judged. Does that make sense? All right. And through the paradigm of the, of the deadlock between grace and judgment, God reveals himself personally as the great and only I am. I put that in quotes because you know that's his name, right? I am that I am. And God replies with this very straightforward name. He replies to some people in a way that he identifies himself and there is no question about it. To others, he hides himself. He hides his identity. Here's my point. I'm going to, I'm going to show you some of these things. I'm just going to just want to make this point. When Moses is talking to God and God's telling him, hey, Moses, guess what? I got a job for you. You're going to love it. And he's going, I, I can't do this job. I, I'm slow of speech. Don't worry. I'll take care of it. I'll get you out of it. No problem. <laughs> He's trying to work his way out of it. Finally, he gets cornered. And he can't work his way out of it. So then he goes, uh, uh, okay, uh, well, uh, who shall I say sent me? Because, <laughs> you know, Pharaoh's probably going to ask who I am and who sent me because he knows I didn't send myself. So what does God say? In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites and to Pharaoh. That's what you say to Pharaoh, but this is what you ought to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Isn't that interesting? Let me ask you this. Did Moses have any question about who was talking with him at that point in time? So God, in Exodus 6 and verse 2, I'll just read this. God said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. I did not make myself known to them by my name. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they lived as aliens. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, Moses, in verse 6, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. In verse 8, I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Now, here's my point. Not only did he directly tell Moses who he is, but he gave Moses a big description on what he's done. Do you get the picture? Let me read this to you. John chapter 6, verses 44 through 46. No, Jesus is saying, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written by the prophets, or written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. But no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. So you, you get the point here, that Jesus is of God, but no one's ever seen God. But if they know Jesus, it's as good as seeing him. So here's this identification piece again. Follow the trail here. Moses, through the burning bush, is seeing judgment and salvation or grace at the same time where judgment is where the bush is not consumed and at that point God reveals himself exactly who he is with no holds barred isn't that interesting what happens to you and me when we're saved we know God before that we have to to get to the point of salvation but you enter and I enter a personal relationship that's bonded through Jesus Christ to God when we accept him as Savior 
It's at the burning bush of Jesus Christ that we are personally allowed to know God intimately. Nobody knows the Father unless they've seen Jesus Christ. And I will tell you that what is not said here, because Jesus Christ didn't die yet and become resurrected, no one can become into close fellowship at all and become the temple of God. You know how close to God you have to be to be His temple? The Holy of Holies? You know how close you have to be? People would die if they went into the Holy Holies in the wrong time. And the high priest, the one time a year he was allowed to go into the Holy Holies, might die because he did something wrong. That's judgment. But with us, we're covered in the blood. We know him personally and we can do no wrong in his eyes. Isn't that something? We know him more intimately than anybody else because we have accepted the burning bush. In John 14 and verse 9, it's this debate. So Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So he's saying Philip wasn't even sure. But he's trying to say, you, you can know me because you can know the Father through me. But there still wasn't this personal identification. John chapter 8 and 57. The Jews are now talking to uh, Jesus and they're getting kind of uh, upset with him. He says, they say to him, you are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Because Jesus said, I have, before Abraham I, I am, right? He said he, was, he, was, he had known Abraham. And he says in John 8, 58, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Interesting. Interesting. That's right. That's right. One more point and then we'll move on. In John chapter 4, there is this story about the Samaritan woman at the well. You're all familiar with it. Let me tell you something about that Samaritan woman at the well. To the Jew, she was a dog. Those Samaritans were considered half-breeds. And even when, when the Jews themselves would travel and they had to go north of Samaria or around Samaria, or where it would be just easier to go right through Samaria, they would go around and extend their trip by days because they would not step a sandal in that land. So where does Jesus go? <laughs> he goes to Samaria. So now he meets this woman in a well. And here's the story. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. See, they were confused. Because after the kingdoms had split and they had become intermarried with the Samarians, they forgot that the Temple Mount was where God's eye was on, right? That was God's place. So they built their own temple up there and they were worshiping God in their own land up there. And so now time goes on and they forget the truth. So she's saying, some of us, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews, talking to Jesus because she knows that he's a Jew from, from, the, uh, from down in Jerusalem. She says, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. But Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, get this, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Are we in that time now? Absolutely. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when, a tr when true worshipers will, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now here's again this now or today business. It wasn't at that point in time now. It was after he died and resurrected now. That was the beginning of the new covenant. And that's what he's talking about. God does not want people to worship at a temple. God wants people where his temple is in them. That's what he's saying here. Worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. 
God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Now again, here's a simple woman, nothing special about her as far as the world goes, but he's given her an awful lot of detail, isn't he? Then the woman says, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. That's what the Jews still are waiting for, aren't they? Well, she was waiting for Messiah. In John chapter 4 and verse 26, Jesus simply says to her, I who speak to you am he. Do you see that exactly what happened to Moses happened to her, except in the inverse? With Moses, God says, I am who I am. I'm giving you a personal introduction to who I am, and I'm telling you what I did. Here, it's sort of the opposite. Jesus gives her a lowdown on what Messiah is going to do and, and the worship that God is going to have through Messiah, the true worship, worship in truth and spirit, and then he tells her plainly, I am Messiah. Did he talk like that to the Pharisees? So this grace through judgment, I just wanted to make that clear. Okay, now we're moving forward in the last few minutes here to Egypt. Now Moses goes to Egypt. After this great introduction to God, and now he's probably going there, even though he's gotten a great introduction with God. And remember also, while he's still wrangling with God about going, God shows him what I call some simple parlor tricks to convince Moses of who he is. Remember, he has Moses put his hand in his vest and it comes out, it's leprous. Puts it in and it comes out and it's clean again. Remember, he drops the rod, it becomes a snake. So I'm pretty sure Moses is getting convinced that this is the real deal, that this is this God, that he knew as, as, uh, as one of the, the, the people down, you know, the Israelites, but now he's actually face to face with them just about it. And so he's going down there, and he's explaining to Moses what he's going to do. Now, in Exodus 12, verse 12, I'm just going to read you, God says about what's going to happen. He goes, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. So the preface here is a lot, a lot of people think of this. When you look at the ten plagues, which we're going to get into, it's not just a judgment on Pharaoh. It's also, kind of, right, it's also kind of unfair, if you want to quote-unquote call it unfair, because there are a lot of Egyptians who, who like the Israelites. Matter of fact, some of them escaped the tenth plague because they were in the home of an Israelite who had the blood of the lamb on the lintel of the door. We're going to get into that a little bit. But here's the point. God was not just judging Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would have, quote-unquote, the excuse, and I'm using the terms loosely, but you know what I'm saying, to, to continue to roll out these plagues one after the other. Why? Because he says it right here. He's judging the gods of Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. He didn't like Pharaoh very much, and there were a lot of sinners in Egypt like there were in other nations, and there still are. That wasn't the point. He is doing something here about their religion, about this world. He is also, don't forget, there's a battle between him and Satan. Remember, it's a chess game. Move, counter move, move, counter move. Now it's God's turn to show his power against all of these other gods that Satan keeps on creating for people. And people get a little dismayed because their gods can't fight back. Their magicians can't do the miracles. Although they do a couple of quote-unquote miracles. Isn't that true during the plagues? Because Satan is allowed to empower them. But God always trumps them. Here's the amplified version of what I just read you in Exodus 12, 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, of course you know what night that is, Passover, the 10th plague, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment, and in brackets, proving their helplessness. I am the Lord. Very simple. So let's talk about the plagues in these last five minutes we have. The first one, 
And I'm just going to ripple through these. I suggest that if you want to study more detail, because we can't, we don't have the time to go through all the scripture, because yes, we do have to leave Exodus at some point. <laughs> we have to get out of Exodus. Get out into the land. So the first plague was the water was turned to blood. Listen. Many gods in Egypt were associated with the principal fuel of the Egyptian commerce or the Egyptian economic engine. And what was that fuel point? The Nile River. That's why they were there, the Nile River. That was the most fertile piece of land. A lot of uh, nations begin or a lot of settlements begin near water. Makes sense, doesn't it? Frogs were sent to cover the land. That was the second one. The Egyptian goddess Heket, H-E-Q-E-T, had the head of a frog. That's why there were frogs. See, this is God just saying, hey, I think I'll take some frogs over here. Um, how come there were no spiders or like chipmunks or, or an overrun of squirrels or something, you know? That's why, frogs. There is historical reference to frogs having been considered sacred in, in ancient Egypt. Third, the dust of the land became sand flies or lice in the Septuagint or gnats in some translations. Fourth, the plague of swarms. Now, the word for the swarms loosely translates into, actually more appropriately translates into scarabs. So these, you know what a scarab is? It really, in Egyptian, now here's why this solidifies this. Because I found out that in Egyptian, what? Well, it's, it's worse than Japanese beetles. They're disgusting. Yeah, we love them, but it's worse than Japanese beetles. Anybody see like Indiana Jones? Remember the scarabs? Because it was part of the Egyptian culture. Egyptian mythology holds the scarab or the dung beetle. Everybody familiar with the dung beetle? They're really cute and their habits are great. Hold the dung beetle as sacred. Of course, they didn't call them dung beetles in those days, but that's what they were. The scarab was personified by the sun god Kepri, K-H-E-P-R-I, who was associated with resurrection and new life. Now, the sun god Kepri was associated with their truest or their biggest sun god, which was Ra. R-A. The ancient Egyptians believed that the beetle came into being of itself as it sprung from a, to life from nothing, from a ball of dung. See, they probably observed this thing and made a god out of it. Hey, ball of dung, rolling it must be something important. Oh, it was born of a ball of dung. Great, so now it's created itself out of a ball of dung. Just as the dung beetle pushes a ball of dung across the ground, so it was with Kepri, associated with the Egyptian sun god Ra, who rolled the sun across the sky. You see how they extrapolate stupidity into this worship and how the world is sustained from a beetle which creates itself and then creates the worlds and now the sun is rolled as a dung is rolled under the, under the dung beetle. But that's what they did. So God used scarabs as a judgment against them. See, it's, what, did, what did God say? I'm going to judge their gods. That's why these plagues are associated with them. The uh, fifth plague. A disease is sent which kills Egyptian livestock but does not touch the animals of the Israelites. Now, remember where they were settled? God gave them land, right, in Goshen in the district of Ramsey. So they actually had land, and this plague did not touch them. Can you imagine the jealous Egyptians around there at that time, huh? Sixth, the plague of boils. Now, listen to this. How did the plague of boils, how was that generated? Do you remember? Moses does something very interesting to kick off this plague. Yes. Actually, more, more um, poignantly, ashes from a furnace. Moses sprinkled ashes from a furnace into the air, and the Egyptian populace broke out with sores. Ash is used as a symbol of worthlessness, grief, humiliation, or repentance. You remember Job? The ashes of the red heifer? What they did, they had to put it outside the camp, and it took a clean person, a person who was, uh, was ritually clean, to get the ashes. 
after the heifer, the heifer would be burnt and put them outside the camp, and then he himself would have to be cleaned again. It's, and also, you, there's other instances of ashes, you know, ashes and sackcloth and all that stuff. So, God uses ashes. And remember, why did Job have to sit in ashes? Because of what? Boils. <laughs> Seventh, hail and fire come from the sky. Eighth, locusts swarm the land and devour what was not destroyed by the hail. Nine, darkness over the three-day period. It's a parallel, like we said, to Jesus' death before he was resurrected in that three-day period, the judgment of sin. And then finally, the tenth, which is the climactic death of all of Egypt's firstborn animals and people. And I just want to wrap this up. We've got a couple of minutes here. Night of the tenth plague was when Passover was initiated as the Israelites would have spat their lamb's blood on the doorposts of each of their homes. Anyone in a covered home during the time the angel was sent to execute this plague whether Israelite or Egyptian, was spared from the effects of this plague. Anyone not inside a covered home during this plague, whether Israelite or Egyptian, was not spared from the plague. You see, so God doesn't care about race here. God cares about the covering of the blood, which is open to all in the house of that blood. All who chose to come into the house whose entrance was covered with the blood were under the protection of the blood. The Passover accomplished major feats, deliverance from bondage and deliverance into fellowship with God. I just want to end up with this. Israel's bondage and deliverance was a measure of several key things. Now, part of this was, remember, when they exited, in the Exodus, and then they get cornered at the Red Sea? So this wasn't over yet. And Pharaoh chases them, and what does God do? He parts the Red Sea. I just want to bring up these last seven points, and then we, we will be dismissed. The bondage and deliverance was a measure of several key points. Just listen to these. Judgment, the plagues. Grace, the blood covering over those judgments. Guidance. When they went to the Red Sea, remember they were all of a sudden out in the desert. They were unprotected. How come they didn't burn up in the day or freeze in the night? Because of God's Shekinah glory. He provided a pillar of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The power of God parted the Red Sea, by the way, at just the right time. He didn't spare a moment, did he? So it looked hopeless. Provision. In the desert, they couldn't fend for themselves. They were used to living in Egypt. Remember they said we had leeks and quail and we, were, we loved it. We were better off there. What did God provide for them? He provided water, a lot of quail, and manna. Sixth, faithfulness. God was honoring the Abrahamic covenant. Even though these people were disobedient, he still took them out. And even after they started worshiping different gods in the wilderness, which we'll get to later on, he still did not go back on his covenant. And finally, a relationship. Because what was built after they were allowed to leave Egypt to worship God? The tabernacle. And then the Ark of the Covenant and the implements. The Passover was the turning point. And, and matter of fact, just to wrap up with this, I mentioned a while ago that the Jews have two calendars. They have a civil calendar and a religious calendar. The civil calendar starts with Rosh Hashanah, which is the fall of the year in September. And that's the one that the rabbis say was the physical creation of, of the world, for September in 4004 BC. However, when Passover came, it was such a landmark event that the religious calendar starts with the beginning of the month that Passover always falls on, which is Nisan, and that became the beginning of the religious calendar, and that's why the Jews have two separate calendars. So when you're talking to a Jew and they start quoting, you talk about calendar issues, a lot of them still really only look at Rosh Hashanah as the head of the year because they're not really involved with the the spiritual head of the year, which starts at the beginning of Nisan in the spring, which is Passover. And that again points to this one important fact. We think we have Easter, and you notice how Easter has been separated from Passover? I believe personally that was instituted 
to back the Jews away from owning God. In reality, Easter does not exist. It is Passover. Just for your information, Easter is a commemorative thing that has to do with pagan rituals, and it's just a commemorative, commemorative thing. There's no history behind it. But Passover, there's history, and Passover is part of the holy day that, like the universe or like the stars, map out God's plan. So if you want to know God's plan, Christmas and Easter are all right, but they show you nothing. Look at the holy days. They're not even Jewish holy days. They are God's appointed feasts. We're going to talk more about those. Next time, we'll start talking about the law and then the tabernacle, its implements, and the, the significance of it. And then we'll be out of Exodus and we'll be on our way to the promised land. So sorry to keep a little bit over. I know I'm going to get in trouble for it. But have a great week, everybody.